Please make sure you have your Bibles there because we're actually looking from in chapter 9 through to chapter 11 and we only read like the middle section so you really need to be able to follow along in your Bible so put up your hand if you need a Bible and uh, someone at the back will get one to you but uh, now I'll pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father we thank you for all we've been learning in the book of Acts especially for the wonderful picture of how the gospel has gone out uh, and people have been saved wherever it has been proclaimed Uh, And we pray that as we look at this very important uh, part of the story today, uh, that it will remind us of just how wonderful the gospel is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some moments in history that everyone knows are important the moment they happen. Uh, So people often say, do you remember where you were when? So for people a bit older than me, people often say, do you remember where you were when JFK was assassinated? I'll have to come up with something different tonight because I'm sure lots of the Sixth Church people say, I don't even know who JFK is. But, uh, but for my generation, anyway, it was when September 11 happened. And so I still remember, uh, Victoria and I, I think we'd had a Bible study group at our house. They'd all gone home. We thought, oh, let's just turn on the TV and, uh, and see before bed. And uh, there was pictures of the planes, you know, going into the building and all that. And uh, uh, I remember it took us about 20 minutes to work out that this wasn't some TV show, that this wasn't some movie. And it was the fact that as we went from channel to channel, it was on every channel. We finally thought, this is real. This is serious. It's just one of those massive events that are just etched into people's memories. Sometimes, though, the moments that really change history, no one notices at the time. Uh, They're actually just obscure moments, but they have massive consequences. One of the most famous examples of that for anyone who studied history uh, is in 1914 when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was was in Bosnia and some young student shot him. I mean, that's a very sad moment for him and for his country and his family and all that sort of thing, but no one would have thought it was relevant to people in England or, or people in America or people in Australia, but that event set off the chain of other events that started the First World War that just sort of brought everyone in. And it was just really this little moment had massive consequences. But this point in the book of Acts, the story focuses in on what really are, are two quite obscure moments about two individual people. Uh, And really, they were deeply personal moments. It's about two different people becoming Christians. But these two moments have totally shaped history more than any other event that's happened since. Even if you are an atheist, uh, these two events have shaped the last 2,000 years more than just about any other event in history. So the first one was last week. Flick back to chapter 9 to remind yourself. Last week, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. It's actually impossible to overstate how massive a moment that is in history because Paul was the man who changed the world. Paul was the man who spread the gospel to stop it being a little thing around Jerusalem to actually take over the whole world. I remember reading a book, it was written by a non-Christian, on the most important people in history and they were arguing why each person was important and so forth and they actually had Paul over Jesus at the top. Paul more important than Jesus and their argument was no one would have known about Jesus if it wasn't for Paul anyway. That's how important they thought the Apostle Paul was. He has shaped history. But today's story actually goes hand in hand with that moment with a less famous person. It's a little more obscure Uh, and as I say in one sense it's just the story of one person coming to faith but if this moment hadn't happened Paul's mission would have been a total failure. If this moment hadn't happened Uh, then everything Paul did would have come to naught. This was just as world-changing. 
So why is this conversion of this one man called Cornelius so important? Because the problem was the apostle to the world, that's Paul, had been converted. The guy was going to take the gospel, but the early church still thought of itself as Jewish. And and so Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So, So Paul could preach the gospel all he wants out to the nations, but what would they do with these Gentiles, these non Jews? What would they what would they do with them? Uh, and, and how are they even going to reach them? if you weren't allowed to go into their house? How are they going to reach them if you weren't allowed to eat with them? And if they became Christians, what did you do then? How did you include them? Did they have to become Jews? We don't get just how big an issue this was. We sort of think, oh, a debate about how someone, whether someone has to become a Jew or not, what's that about? This was the question of the early church. Just about every one of the epistles in the New Testament is to some degree taken up with this question. And you and I, unless you are from a Jewish background, we are only Christians because this moment happened. This is how important this is. Cornelius is our spiritual father. So come with me into it. We're actually picking it up in chapter 9, verse 32. So look there. See, having focused on Paul coming to know Jesus, the story switches back to the parallel story. If you remember, Acts really, in terms of the human protagonist other than Jesus, it's Peter and Paul who are the two main characters. Uh, And this focuses back on that other key person, Peter. So it's Peter in Joppa from chapter 9, verse 32. So by this time, Peter's left Jerusalem, he's traveling around Judea, he's preaching the gospel, he's doing amazing things, he's healing people and the like, uh, and he's ended up in Joppa. Now, just by the way, you can still go to the supposed house of Simon the Tanner, where he was in Joppa. Uh, Joppa's like the little village that Tel Aviv has grown up all around in, in modern Israel. Who knows whether it's actually the house, but it doesn't stop whoever lives there now making some money from it. But, but anyway, but tell me, as you hear Peter is in Joppa, does anything go off in your mind? If you know your Bible, if you know your Old Testament, as I say, Peter was in Joppa. Does it make you think of anything or anyone? Joppa is where Jonah ran to, to get away from God. So, so immediately you sort of think, oh, hang on. Joppa was the place where Jonah went to avoid sharing God's word with Gentiles. Remember the story of Jonah? Where, where, where God said, go and tell the people of Nineveh, they're not Jews, but tell them so that they might turn back and be saved. And Jonah said, I'm not telling them, get lost. And he went to Joppa to get on a boat. How amazing that it's in Joppa. It's just this lovely little irony that Peter, with his reluctance to take the gospel of the nations, that that's where God confronts him. So anyway, we've got Peter doing God's work among the Jews in Joppa, but then we switch scenes. This story is incredibly beautifully told because it just switches from person to person and then ties them together at the end. So next we meet Cornelius the God-fearer. This is chapter 10 from verse 1. So look with me there, it says, there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. So straight away what you see here is Cornelius is a pretty impressive guy. He's an important man. He's a commander of a hundred other soldiers. More than that, he was a God-fearer. So what that means is he, he was impressed by the God of the Jews. He, he, he knew the pagan gods and idols were a waste of time. He knew there was one true God, and that was the God of the Old Testament. That was who he prayed to, but he hadn't converted yet. 
Uh, he was a seeker, if you like. He was listening to the Old Testament scriptures. He'd started to do the good things God's word said you should do, but he hadn't taken that step of becoming a Jew, which was actually a major step because he would have had to have been circumcised. Uh, so he couldn't go to the temple. He couldn't go to the synagogue, that sort of thing. It's really important to understand this. Yes, Cornelius was well disposed towards God, but he was still on the outside. He, he was still excluded. He was still a Gentile. So here we've got Cornelius, he's praying and at that moment an angel come and tells him you should send some of your men to Joppa to get Simon Peter. You need to meet Simon Peter and Cornelius does what he's told. And so now the story switches back to Peter. So we come to Peter from chapter 10 verse 9 because while they're on their way God was getting Peter ready to meet Cornelius. I love this story because you've got Cornelius praying and God gives him a vision of an angel. Now you've got Peter praying and God gives him a vision so that the two can come together. And, it, and so God gives him this vision. Look from verse 11. It says, He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter is totally shocked that God would say this to him. Why was he so shocked, do you think? Well, because this had every animal on earth and there were lots of animals on this earth that Peter knew he wasn't allowed to eat because God had told him so in the Old Testament law. So, so some of these animals he was invited to kill and eat were unclean. They were forbidden. There would have been a pig on there. There would have been shellfish on there. There would have been lizards and all sorts of things. So Peter says, look at verse 14, "'No, Lord!' Peter said, for I have never eaten anything common and ritually unclean. I love this. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter's not averse to saying no to his Lord, just like he did to Jesus a few times, you remember? So anyway, Peter's still got his, his personality. Anyway, but you have to understand, before you jump to judge Peter, you have to understand how ingrained this was. It was about being holy. Part of the Old Testament law was you are to be holy, you are to be different to the other nations, and one way you show that is you don't eat the foods they eat. Uh, that was part of the way it was. So he's thinking, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to disobey the law of God that I've my whole life tried to keep. More than that, though, around God's law, the Pharisees ha had created extra rules. The, the Jewish people had extra rules, so you didn't even get close to breaking the law. So that one of those was you can't even go into the house of a Gentile because they'll have cooked a pig in there and you don't want to go in somewhere like that. So Peter just doesn't want to do this. But God rebukes him. Look at verse 15. God says, what God has made clean, you must not call common. I think that's a great line, isn't it? That's God saying to Peter, seriously, you're going to argue with me? You know, you, you argued with my son a few times. Now, now you're arguing with me? You know, I gave you these laws in the first place. I'll tell you how to understand them. Don't argue with me. Now, Peter should have known this already. So if you think back, Peter was there when Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, you can read it later on, when he said, it's not the food that goes into you that makes you unclean. Do you remember when Jesus said that? Where he says, it's not the food that goes into you that makes you unclean. What did Jesus say makes you unclean? The things that come out of your heart. The, the anger, the malice, the lust, the envy, the greed. All, they're the things that make you common or, or defiled before God. So Jesus had already told Peter, it doesn't matter what food you eat. So Peter should have known that, but this is so ingrained in him, 
He just couldn't contemplate it. In fact, it tells us God had to tell him three times. He had to repeat it three times before Peter thought, well, I might listen. And so here's Peter still wondering, you know, what's this all about when the men from Cornelius come knocking on his door? And so now this brings us to the climax of the story, the conversion of Cornelius. So Peter goes with them. When he gets to Cornelius's house, Cornelius has invited everyone he knows, all his relatives, all his close friends are there. I love this little moment. I love as you read through Acts, just seeing these little sort of pop-out moments. They're not the main point of the story, but just these little moments. I love the fact sometimes the best evangelists aren't even converted yet. And I have seen this so many times in the life of our church where someone here invites a friend along to church or to the life course or something like that. And, and that friend then on week two has got four other friends with them. They haven't even come to know Jesus yet, but they're bringing their friends along because they think, well, this seems pretty important. I want to share it with my friends. Well, here God has told Cornelius, Peter's going to offer you salvation. He's thinking, well, I better invite everyone to hear about that. I don't know about you, but I find that a little bit of a rebuke. Uh, when people who don't know the gospel yet uh, are quicker and more urgent to invite people to hear it than me who knows a lot about the gospel and should know Jesus very well. But anyway, Peter walks in, Cornelius falls at his feet to worship him. Uh, Peter is horrified by that. Look at verse 26. He says, stand up, I'm only a man myself. Peter doesn't want people worshipping him. He wants people worshipping Jesus. And I think that's just another of those little nuggets of gold you see in the story as we're going through, not the main point. But how sad is it that bishops and popes who often claim to walk in the line of Peter, how sad is it that they let people bow down to them and kiss the ring on their finger or, or kiss their feet and so forth? Peter would be horrified by some of the things the church does in his name, some of the things popes and bishops do in his name. But back to the story. Peter is nervous. He says, I, I shouldn't be here. He's still uncomfortable. He, he, he doesn't want to do this. I'm not meant to be in, in a Gentile's house. I'm only here because God has told me that I should be. But Cornelius tells him about his dream and he says, I want everyone to hear what you've got to say. And so Peter does what God has called him there to do. He preaches the gospel. Now, I made a mistake. I meant to change the reading so that we read the most important part of the passage and we didn't. So the most important part of the passage is actually from verse 34. So make sure you're following along. Verse 34, that's where we're up to. Because here is just one of those great sermons we've seen all through Acts where Peter explains the gospel. So what does he do? He tells them about Jesus. He tells them about what Jesus came and did and what Jesus came and said. He particularly tells them about the death of Jesus. And he uses an interesting phrase. He talks about how Jesus was hung on a tree. I think he uses that, in, these sermons are like the Reader's Digest version. Just in case you're thinking, why can't Phil be as short as Peter in his sermons? I think they're like the, the Reader's Digest versions. When it, he used that phrase, I think he would have explained how that meant Jesus was cursed on our behalf, because that's the Old Testament law. To be hung on a tree was to be cursed. That's what he would have been explaining the death of Jesus. And then he explains how now Jesus has risen from the grave, and that means every person needs to hear that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. It's just another of those great gospel sermons in Acts. But I want to point out a couple of key verses that capture the essence of this story and why it's been recorded for us. So look with me at, chapters, at verses 34 and 35. Really important. These are the key verses. It says, Then Peter began to speak. 
Now, I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. Now, I want you to look at these verses really closely because people get this wrong and people use this verse to justify wrong understandings. Some people look at verse 35 there and they say, oh, so anyone who fears God and does good things is acceptable to God. And so they say, you don't need to know Jesus to be saved. We don't need to go and tell people about Jesus. As long as they're fearing God, whatever they view God to be, and as long as they're living a good life, uh, somewhat like what the Bible says, then they're okay. But Peter cannot have been saying that, can he? Because one, it would contradict everything Jesus taught him. It would contradict everything the whole Bible teaches. More than that, if it was true, why did he bother going to see Cornelius? Cornelius already feared God. Cornelius did good things. Peter wasn't there to say, hey, Cornelius, you're fine with God. It's all okay. Don't worry about it. No, Peter is not saying that. And he makes that very clear at the end of his speech in the other key verse in verse 43. Look there. It says, all the prophets testify about him, that's Jesus, that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. You see, what it's saying in verse 34, 35, sorry, and what it's saying in verse 43 are two ways of saying the same thing. You see, how do you become acceptable to God and how do you receive his forgiveness? It's by believing in Jesus. And another way of saying that is how do you fear the Lord? Well, you put your faith in Jesus. Someone who fears the Lord hears the gospel and puts their faith in Jesus and then they do righteousness as someone who follows Jesus. Because you see, the point of verses 34 and 35 is not to suggest there's another way to be acceptable to God other than faith in Christ. The key point is the words there. Look at it again, verse 34 and 35. The key words there is God does not show favoritism. That's the point Peter's come to understand. Or in verse 35, in every nation, people who fear him. You see, the key point is God does not show favoritism but instead God is open to any person from every nation coming and finding forgiveness in Christ. The point Peter's come to understand is that the gospel is for every person on earth. The gospel is for every person. Every person needs to hear about Jesus and so because of that there must be no stumbling blocks in their way. There must be nothing that gets in the way of us sharing the gospel with them or of them understanding and hearing the gospel. Which leads to the beautiful climax of the story. Look with me from verse 44. Peter is still speaking, and then it says, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded, that's the Jewish believers. They were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. At this point, even while Peter had hardly finished explaining the gospel, these Gentiles became Christians. They believe in Jesus. They receive the Holy Spirit. This is just an amazing moment. See, the gospel had gone to the Jews. We've seen that in the first few chapters. It had even gone to their sort of half-brothers, the Samaritans. But now, even Gentiles were being saved. It's amazing when any person is saved. But this was like the breaking down of the damn wall. The water can now pour out because now a Gentile had become a Christian. Uh, now let's just pause at this point. Why did God do it in this way, do you think? 
Last week, Paul was converted. Why not just have Paul talk to the first Gentile he meets and have them become a Christian and so forth? Why this whole rigmarole to make this big point of Peter being there and an obvious coming down of the Holy Spirit at the moment of this conversion? Why did it have to happen like that? See, from now on, conversions don't look like this in the book of Acts or in in the rest of life. From now on, there's not all this big rigmarole and and an apostle doesn't have to be there. And and there isn't this this coming of the Holy Spirit so that people speak in languages they didn't know up until then. Why this point here? It's because this is exactly the same as what happened when the gospel first came to the Jews at Pentecost. And it's exactly what happened, if you remember, when the gospel first came to the Samaritans a couple of weeks ago. Because go back all the way into the gospels. What did Jesus say to Peter? He said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. He's saying, and so Peter, by Peter being there and having this obvious work of the Holy Spirit tied to it, God is saying, this is my work. This is real. This is legit. I've saved Jews. I've saved Samaritans. Now I'm saving Gentiles. Get with the program. That's what God's doing. Get on board or get out of the way. And Peter got the message. I love his response. Look at verses 46 and 47. It says, Then Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I love that. Peter is saying, How can we withhold the symbol when they've already got the reality? Always remember that. Baptism with water is just a symbol, it's not magic. Nothing magical is happening. Baptism is just a symbol. But how can you withhold the symbol when people have already got the spiritual reality, when they've received the forgiveness of Christ, when they've got the Holy Spirit? How can we not accept them when it's so clear God has accepted them? But that brings us to the last part of the story. And we didn't read this, so come to chapter 11, the first 18 verses. Because the question is, would others accept them? Have you ever had that experience when you're on a real high and you've got this great news And then you share it and other people aren't interested. Uh, Where you share great news, but then they just sort of burst your bubble. A couple of months ago, I was playing golf with a good friend of mine and he got a hole in one. I've never seen that before. It was just amazing. The ball went up and it came, it didn't even bounce, went straight in the hole. And we were amazed. We're jumping around, we're carrying on like kids, you know. He rang his wife. (laughs) Not even interested. When are you going to get home? You know, and it's amazing. Even as I mentioned sport there, some of you, your eyes glazed over and burst my bubble. You know, oh, he's mentioning sport again. Just don't get onto the rugby league. I won't. Don't worry. But uh, there is one last little moment in today's story that's even worse than that. And we didn't read it before. So flip over to the start of chapter 11. Peter comes to Jerusalem. He's so excited. How the other Christians respond? Look at verse 2. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, those who stressed circumcision argued with him saying, you visited uncircumcised men and ate with them. I reckon that is one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. It's so sad and it is so deflating, isn't it? God is at work. People are being saved. You're a Christian and that's your response. Can I tell you, in a moment of confession, every evangelist and church minister has suffered that deflation over the years. When you share the joy of seeing God's at work, God at work in people's lives, but the people who are already meant to know Jesus don't seem excited. 
don't seem excited by it, or even worse, grumble about it and criticise it. Many, many years ago, this is before I went to Bible college, so it wasn't this parish council. We've got an excellent parish council just for those who are here. But uh, I was on parish council at the church I was at, and it was a tiny little church, but a great work happened amongst the evening congregation, and it grew from, you know, about 20 or 30 to about 60 or 70, which is quite amazing, this little church. Uh, And the minister was sharing about that growth we'd seen among young people, and as soon as he shared it, one of the old guard, one of the old members of the church said, well, I hope they don't want to make any changes. And you just see the minister deflate. You just see it like, oh, seriously, I've just told you about young people becoming Christians and you are worried about whether they're going to move a seat in the church or not. But it doesn't knock a grunt out of Peter. Look, he tells them what happened. He goes through the whole story and they get it. Look at verse 18. When they heard this, they became silent. Then they glorified God saying... So God has granted repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. So even the grumblers couldn't doubt such an obvious work of God. Well, there is that second great moment in history for us. It is a great story, but what are we to take away from it? There are some passages of Scripture where there are obvious calls on us, obvious applications, do this, think that, all that sort of thing. This one is more subtle, and I think the main response for us today from this passage is, Praise God that we have been included. This is the main thing to do in response to this. Just be thankful. Praise God. Praise God that he knocked down those barriers so that the gospel could go out. So it didn't just stay there in Jerusalem and Judea. It could go out even to us. Praise God he doesn't show favoritism. Praise God that the gospel is for every person, whatever tribe, nation or tongue they are from. Any person can find forgiveness, including us through the grace of Jesus. Praise God that those first Jewish Christians shared their Messiah with us. Praise God that they went beyond their culture and they gave up so much that was dear to them so that we, people like us, Gentiles, could hear the gospel. This is the first response we should have, praise God. Second thing though, we need to make sure we welcome people like God welcomes people. Second conclusion I want to draw is from that response of the Jewish Christians and that old member of the parish council all those years ago. That response of, well, they're welcome to join us if they'll just change us, change and become like us. Because that response has actually been mirrored right throughout all of history. And it looks like this. Christians say, yes, Jesus is the Lord. Yes, we're great supporters of evangelism. We love supporting missionaries to go over there and tell people about Jesus. Yes, we will welcome anyone into the church, but only if they will just change and become like us. When you understand the gospel, when you understand that every person from every culture, every age, every whatever else divides humanity, every person needs to find Jesus to be saved. When you get that, when you understand the fact that Jesus commands his church to share the gospel with the whole world, with every nation, when you understand that, you realise that while the message is unchanging and non-negotiable, the word of God must never change, but everything else is negotiable. Too often, as Christians, we demand people fit in with our culture and then we'll tell you about Jesus. You come in here to church and we'll tell you about Jesus. You come in here and become like us and we'll share Jesus. Rather than willing to go out there and change ourselves and make them feel comfortable to win them for Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul went on to say, he said, I will become all things for all men so that I might win some of them for Christ. 
See, Paul said, if I'm meeting with Jews, I will take pork off the menu. You know, if I'm meeting with Gentiles, I'll take a double serve of pork. If I'm going to Melbourne, I'll pretend I like AFL. <laughs> you, you, you know, sorry, Rob, at the back there. But, uh, if they wear head coverings around here, I'll put on a scarf. You know, what do I care? What do I care what I like? What do, what do I care about my rights? What do I want? I count that all as irrelevant. I'll put my own interests aside so that I can reach other people with the gospel. The truly faithful Christian, the truly faithful church will do anything to win people for Christ except change the message, except changing the gospel, the word of God. Everything else is negotiable. And that is what we have to be. We have to be people who will give up what we want, give up what we like, give up our rights and our culture and our preferences to just get out there and win other people for Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this first Gentile coming to know the wonderful news of the gospel. And we thank you for the way that opened up the floodgates so that the gospel could go to all people and that Peter and Paul realised, along with the others, that in fact there should be no barriers, no stumbling blocks and that people just need to hear about Jesus. And so we pray that we would never lose our thankfulness for that but also that we would never put stumbling blocks in front of people coming to hear the good news. In Jesus' name, amen.